Welcome to the latest episode of Red Devil Talk, the podcast. I am Jimmy Williams, and today on the show, I'm delighted to be joined by journalist, author, and more importantly, United fan John Silk to discuss his new book, Even the Defeats, which is a piece of work detailing how Sir Alex Ferguson drew inspiration from losses to mastermind some of United's greatest triumphs. First things first, John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Um, I'm glad you mentioned as well that the most important characteristic is the fact that I'm <laughs> United fan because because it's true really I I mean it would just have been impossible really to give it the same amount of heart and, and enthusiasm without being a fan as you mentioned earlier by a fan for the fans yeah exactly and um, in a way that kind of just happened naturally it wasn't most most other elements of the book I say ninety nine percent is kind of a thought out process and you had ideas and things change but that kind of just happened by accident I mean one or two people that have read the book have said to me, oh, wow, it feels, you know, I can feel this, and it's great, it's a fan of you. It wasn't really a, a considered point, but it's just a natural byproduct of being a United fan and writing a book about, about Man United. When you got in touch, I have to say, I was, I was immediately interested in the story because I'm fascinated by psychology, performance, setbacks. To me, your passion is acutely evident in the acknowledgements. You mentioned your stepmother, who, in your own words, harnessed your love for United and indeed football. Can you tell me a bit more about her role in fostering that love for United? Yeah, absolutely. I think everyone, um, every individual will have their own personal story when it comes to, to the, the club that they love and how they fell in love with the game. And I'm no different. So I remember, um, I think it was 84, 85 season, and uh, my stepmother, who's a Mancunian herself, um, and her father, who's also a Mancunian, her mother was Irish, kind of a, a classic kind of Mancunian lineage, I guess. She caught me playing football in the garden, but I didn't have a ball. I mean, it wasn't like I came from a super poor background, but certainly at this point, I didn't have a ball. And so I had this embarrassing moment where she catches me playing football, pretending, you know. And, and by the way, this, this infectiousness or this feeling of, 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 of having a ball nearby never leaves us. You know, you can see Ferg, I, you know, I can remember moments of Ferguson on the bench, bench as, he, as he jutted his head towards, you know, something as though the ball was there or... Or we all see coaches and players and, and even adults today, whenever you walk on the pitch and there's a football, the immediate reaction is to act like a child and just kick it towards the empty goal. And kind of, in, even it doesn't matter if you're 70 or 17 or seven, that kind of feeling never leaves you. Anyway, she caught me playing football in my garden without a ball. And, and that was the beginning, really, because at this stage, she'd only recently got with my father and... Um, she didn't really know much about me. She certainly didn't know I was a big football fan. And as soon as she did, well, that was the beginning, of course. And then came the kits and 
and the football stickers and the and the my obsession and the, the lunchbox and the the duvet and and all of these things and, and I think I touch on it briefly in the in that uh, recognition about how she intentionally mispronounced my favorite player so she would always call him Jasper and I kept saying to her as a five or six year old I kept saying to her it's Jesper you know knowing the sort of Danish pronunciation I guess because we know all these things as, as kids and, and as adults as well. You mentioned Jesper Olsen as one of your favorite players in terms of other favorite players who would have excited you growing up? I mean, the obvious one, Mark Hughes, Brian Robson, um, I mean, that, that kind of classic and they're obvious. But I think fans, it's, it's kind of peculiar. We, we will maybe have an affection for one other player or another. Um, and, and mine was Jesper also. I mean, it's a winger. I was never that good at football and certainly was never going to be a winger. Um, but I think that ability to beat a player to this day is the thing that, that, that captivates fans more than anything else. I mean, I, I, you know, I heard Chris Waddle once say that he used to imagine and, and, and hear in his head when, when, um, when he would hear the seats flick up because he knew the players, you know, the fans were getting off their seat as, as he would be a player. And um, yeah, I guess, you know, wiry, skillful, pacey wingers was kind of really what, you know, even if they were frustrating as well, they were the people that kind of caught the eye, maybe more so in the 80s. I mean, nowadays, those players can often be a central figure. I mean, we're talking about a different planet to Jesper Olsen, but, but people like um, Messi and, and Ronaldo tend to do a lot of their work in the middle of the pitch nowadays. And, and football has changed immensely, but and it will change immensely again, no doubt, in the future. But um, yeah, I, I don't know why Jesper Olsen was that, that guy for me. I want to move on to the the main subject of the podcast tonight, I think a good place to start is to ask, why did you want to write this book? And at what point did you begin formulating your ideas for this? There was a chance conversation between me and some fans. Um, some were united and some were not. Uh, and so you can probably guess their viewpoint from the nature of the conversation. And it centered around the 0102 and then 02-03 season. Uh, for about 18 months, I would suggest. Um, and then probably there was the 03 championship win for Man United, but then there was the next two or three years that followed. And this was the first time that Ferguson's probably position was questioned and maybe even in jeopardy, but we can come to that later. And there was a seminal defeat uh, around that time when we lost. I mean, there were, there were probably three big Manchester City losses, if you like, during the Ferguson time of importance, not just in terms of scoreline. And this was one of them. It was a 3-1 defeat in 2002 uh, when, yeah, we lost in, in the last ever uh, derby at Main Road. And I think it was the first victory that Man City had had in 13 years since uh, another defeat, uh, which is also heavily highlighted in the book when we lost 5-1. This particular defeat was something I remember a debate occurring. And I kept kind of thinking about, subconsciously thinking about how fans, we, no matter how successful the club is, we often remember those defeats. Now, as it turns out, that defeat turned out to be a turning point in that season. And so six months later, almost a year later, um, it became a, a, a talking point between me and my friends of, hey, look, remember that defeat when, you know, everyone was going crazy about Ferguson and Ferguson lost it and everything else. 
and seven or eight months later, we'd won the title. So that became a, a turning point in that season. And subconsciously, that was kind of the birth of it, but I didn't realise at the time. But certainly as the years went by, and then, of course, there was more questions about Ferguson in the sort of 04, 05 period, 06 period of, look, Ferguson's lost it, I remember. On the terraces themselves, there was the shouting and screaming of attack, attack, attack. And it was said with frustration and frustration at how things were unfolding. It wasn't just about the nature of the play, but it was also, you know, seeing that Kiros's influence at the time was being, you know, was being questioned as was Ferguson's position himself. We didn't see how the Ronaldo thing was unfolding or going to unfold at the time, but anyway, that's how it was. But then more recently, it was never a book at this stage. But what certainly started to develop, probably in the last two or three years, was then thinking about writing a book. And if I was ever going to write a book, the first one was always going to be about Manchester United. So then, of course, it had to be about finding something that hadn't been done before. And there's many books about Ferguson, and, and probably the two best are the ones that you know he himself wrote, or you know, his two autobiographies, especially his first one, in, in my opinion. Um, just because I think it was a, a lot more detailed and, and probably a little bit less um, rushed than the second one. But then, so then I've got to find a new angle. And this theme of defeats um, was kind of always there and seeing, I noticed three or four really clear narratives that I could easily think about and think about, okay, there was, as it turned out, beautifully for the narrative, the 5-1 defeat to Man City in 89 also came in the same season as, as Ferguson won his first trophy. So there's a nice narrative there. You can build stuff around it. Football is, is about narratives and passion, and so I really like that. Of course, there's a lot more about Ferguson's success than one 5-1 defeat in 1989. But there's some great stories that emanate from that. And you can draw a link between a lot of the bad moments in his early years and the eventual success he enjoyed in 1990 with the FA Cup. Again, there's an obvious narrative, and probably even clearer, between the title defeat of 92 and the title victory of 93. And when it comes to the psychology of football, I think with this particular collapse, we can really draw some very clear, clear and obvious evidence that there is, without one, the other one, may not occur let's say I, I can't say probably or definitely but certainly ferguson um you know the key architect behind this would use examples would would hang up things in the dressing room to motivate the team pictures of, of ho the home defeat against 2-1 a 2-1 against nottingham forest and and reminding the players of of what happened after the defeat at anfield which now this this is where the element of being a fan and passion comes into it because the worst day I ever experienced as a United fan came in that loss at Anfield in 92 that meant the league was going to be heading to Ellen Road. And I spoke to other fans, which contributed to the book as well, fanzine, you know, writers, etc., who said exactly the same. And, you know, it, it was the worst for me and it was the worst for them for very similar reasons. When we lost the league that day at Anfield, our bitter rivals, you know, worst rivals even than Leeds, you know, it was like, maybe this is never going to happen. It's unbelievable to think 20 years later, having won 13 titles. But that day, thought we thought it might never happen. As it turned out, Tommy Doherty, the former United manager, said something similar. 
on the other side of the the coin, if you like, um, Alan Hansen said exactly the same, but maybe he had different motives for, for wanting that. But still, that's how it felt. 25 years, it's now you know going to be 26 if we were to win it again the following or to win it the following season, but it felt distant. It felt, felt close but distant and really hurt. And as painful as it was for me as a fan, the other title defeats and losses were never quite as bad as that. I'm not old enough to remember relegate, relegation in the mid-70s, so that was never a thing for me. So, yeah, and then as I, as I looked at other big moments, like 95, I used the word setbacks in the title because it wasn't just defeats, there were setbacks. And sometimes it would be a series of defeats or a season or a moment. And, and again, now this is again really clear, and we can see the direction of, of the club changing quite dramatically with the, with the sales of Ince, Kamchelskis and Hughes. And we see the direction of the club going really dramatically. I heard Michael Cox say recently that the um, the uh, the man behind the website, um, Zonal Marking, and he's also contributed to the athletic team. I heard him say recently about the sales of those players and then the season that followed that it was kind of a um, it was kind of a, a transitional season that normally we would look at as just being one of those things. But as it turned out, we won the league the next season because you know, Keegan and Newcastle collapsed and we were still pretty good, but arguably that was a transitional season that we still ended up winning the league. But then of course that then leads on to, you know, other success. So I could go on, but every time I analysed a, a defeat or a setback, I could see a nice journey towards a victory, which is why I picked out, I think, nine or ten clear examples of that. And they're all documented in the book in different chapters. You mentioned 1992, Anfield obviously leads went on to win the league. I think for United fans at that point, the whole frustration was that they had come close a couple of times in the 80s. They had come close under Atkinson. They always kind of ended up empty-handed though at the end of the season. And then that game at Anfield, watching Leeds win the league, I think that was just a culmination of many devastating years for the United fans. Yeah, uh, I mean, it was... um... But it, like I say, I, the only words I can say, and these are feelings rather than enough, but they are echoed by other fans. It just felt, it felt more distant that day than, than any other moment. I mean, being so close, but it, it felt close, but it didn't feel like we would necessarily be knocking at the door. And of course, that was really rammed home by the first three games of the following season. We lost away to Sheffield United 2-1. Um, and this is a, a Sheffield United that were there's knocking on doors. They were constantly wrecking, knocking on the door of relegation and it wasn't long before they were eventually relegated. It might have been a couple of years later. And actually Sheffield United at the time would always have a bad first half of the season. And talking about psychology, and I am going off a tangent here, um, I think uh, Harry Bassett, the, or Dave Bassett, the nickname Harry, the manager of, of Sheffield United at the time, was frustrated because they always had a much better second half of the season. And so one, one August, there was a newspaper stunt that Harry Bassett set up where they all dressed up as Father Christmas in August to try and... It was a joke thing, but it was kind of set the team up as like, right, now is Christmas and now the real stuff begins. And I mean, I've gone off a tangent there, but it's a funny psychological trick that, that he tried to use on the players. Um, but yeah, we started that following season really badly. We lost 3-0 at home to Everton in a sort of three-quarters full Old Trafford because they were refurbishing one end of the ground and then I think we drew at home to to uh, Ipswich and and so points wise we'd, we'd earned one point from nine and 
on the back of what happened with the previous season and losing two games, knowing that four, five, or six is kind of the limit for winning a title. Even back then, I mean, nowadays it's sometimes even less. You know, you lose two in the first three and you're in trouble. You're in trouble. And um, so it certainly felt a long way off. And, and I, I, I want to come back to another psychological element that Ferguson used. Um, and he, he reminded, and, and I think this has been well documented, but I will, you know, repeat it. And, and it is mentioned, of course, in the book. Um, and that's after that defeat at Anfield when Giggs definitely, there's some conjecture about, I tried to verify who the other players involved were, Sharp as well, and maybe Paul Ince. I've heard um, other stories about whether he was there or not. And like I said, I tried to make sure I did my research, but definitely Sharp and Giggs were there and probably Ince too, where they were asked for their autographs by Liverpool fans after the match. And they signed. They do the thing, you know, they're wearing the blazer, they've got to hold their head up high and, you know, the, basically teenagers are asking them for autographs at the end of the day, so you oblige. And the fans then tear up the autographs in their faces and laugh. And Ferguson, and he still mentioned it, I think 20 years later um, at a dinner, just after we lost the league to Man City, mentions it uh, the, the night after we lose in, in 2012, 20, yeah, 2012. So this this setback notion and this this using it as fuel um, for the success that was to follow was very 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 important to Ferguson. And there's no doubt that defeat or that loss. And 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 there's also the learning as well. Ferguson was a proud person, and we know that. And sometimes pride can get in the way of making the right judgments. But he wasn't afraid to learn. And I think there were one or two mistakes that he probably recognises or soon recognised afterwards that he did make in the run-in. I mean, Brian Robson talked about the run-in a year later and talked about how the atmosphere was much more relaxed and was much more confident. And a year later, if we think about the collapse from 92, and there were other factors involved, such as, uh, I mean, we know about the, the, the backlog of games and stuff, but mentally, it was a hugely different atmosphere. And a year later, Brian Robson mentions how they were much more confident a year later. Uh, and they, they were much more relaxed. And the, the, the performances a year later were in stark contrast. I think we won maybe the last eight or nine games in that 92-93 season. Um, and so in the end, I think we won the title by 10 points, but it was much closer than that. Um, you know, it, was, it went down to sort of the final week. It was just because Villa, I think, lost their last couple of games and we won them that gave it that, that gap. But it was a tense title race. But we just kept performing. And I was at Cow Road where we won 3 1. You know, it was just, I think it was two days after we won that game Sheffield against Sheffield Wednesday. And, but what impressed me, the Sheffield Wednesday game was a nervy game. And that was probably why they were so excited at the end. But the game against Norwich, which was funny enough, we were a title rival along with Villa, they were, they were destroyed them in 25 minutes. And I remember, although um, I, I was at the game, I actually watched it afterwards, of course. And, the Sky commentator said, and when I think the third goal goes in, I, I just remember this line. Um, it was, and it was uh, Ian Dark who was working for Sky at the time said, "And the calmest man in Old Trafford is is Sir Alex or Alex Ferguson as he was then." It was just such a, a great line, and the football we played that night was sensational. I mean, I think it's the second goal, or it might be the third, but it's a, as it became years later, it became a classic trait of United. Was the counter attack was just three, four, five, six. One touch passes and perfect and not easy and under pressure. 
so um, yeah, I mean, I know I'm giving you lengthy answers, but it's an illustration of my passion. But but yeah, this this ability to learn and use the feet to inspire victories is just a constant throughout over this time that we've come. I obviously don't know you personally. You know, we only began chatting three hours ago, maybe. Yeah, something like that. But your passion is clear to me. I think an important question to ask is for you personally. Are you pleased with the outcome of the book? Do you feel like you achieved what you set out to achieve? Yeah, I, I'm nodding because I'm not because I necessarily agree, but it's an interesting question. Listen, first book. So first book in my life. And, um, you know, it's, it's great to, to achieve that, I guess, without sounding too arrogant. But it's been done, and I'm really pleased with the work that Pitch Publishing did. Um, in a way, the book, as I said, has kind of been, it's been even longer than 18 years in the process. It's probably been 35, 36 years in the process just because of being a Man United fan. And I am pleased with it by and large. Now, you can always ask for more time. I think in the words of, uh, was it Mike Phelan or Steve McLeod? I think it's Mike Phelan said, we never, United never lose, we just run out of time. <laughs> so in, a, in, in another world, in another time, you know, you, you can always ask for more time. And I mean, to be honest, Pitch would have, would have accepted that. If I said, Pitch, listen, it's not anywhere near what I want it to be. I'm going to need another six months on this. And let's say for Christmas 2021, that, that window of opportunity was still there, even, even in the last week before sending them the final copy. So that, that, but it's also like, you know, this was a good year for me personally to do it. Um, I'm working as a journalist in Germany, but I did have, irrespective of the pandemic, I still had five or 10 hours a week to dedicate towards something else. And we don't always, we can't always guarantee that. So it was a good time to do it. And I really wanted to get it out for Christmas 2021. Uh, sorry, 2020 this year, I think. So that meant having it done by August, really, which it was done by the beginning of August, if you like. It then goes to the publishers, it comes back to me. There's a few more bits and bobs that need to be done, but basically by September, that's it. Um, so yeah, I am pleased with it. Now, more time. I mean, I could have another, you could, I could never finish this. I could be doing it for another two or three years and still think, give me another week, you know, final piece of the jigsaw is the, the first uh, chapter is called as a, as a phrase that, that Ferguson used a few times. So you, you could always, and of course, contacts as well. Being a newbie to the game, um, it's not so easy for me to get contacts. As it turned out, I got some lucky strokes, if you like, with Renny Mullenstein. Um, I contacted him a few times and, 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 and in different ways of contacting him. I didn't know him, um, but fortunately, he came through for me and it was great. And then, you know, we agreed to do the, the forward, which was just amazing. But um, yeah, you could always have more time, more contacts, et cetera. But, but yeah, by and large, I'm, I'm relatively pleased with it. You mentioned Renee Mullenstein there. I know that you had conversations with the likes of Archie Knox and, yeah. and Renee Mullenstein for this book. How did you yeah. go about gaining insight into what made Ferguson tick? Yeah, I spoke to um, Archie on the phone. Um, his biographer helped me with that. And so I'm grateful for that. I mean, there were many people that helped me in. And uh, I mentioned them in the acknowledgements. I mean, Archie was there at the beginning. Again, I didn't know him before before being put in touch, but Archie was there at the beginning and, and, and he spoke about uh, a few things. Um, um, not just about what made Ferguson tick. I think there's been a lot mentioned about that, but certainly some of the crucial decisions he made and 
how Ferguson felt after the, the 5-1 defeat to Man City in 89 and, and his reaction to that and not wanting to go out so much socially. I think the two used to hang out quite a lot socially back then. It's a very different world to today, I guess, but, you know, they go to the out for dinner and stuff together with their wives and they were quite close friends and worked together at Aberdeen. But also one thing that he, he mentioned, actually, which I didn't, I'd never read or heard about before, and this is really why contacts can be useful because you want to introduce new stuff. So we spoke about Jim Layton and uh, we talk about psychology here. And um, it's quite sad in a way, Jim Layton. Maybe one of the sadder moments that I discovered when learning, when researching this book was devastation that that caused for Jim Layton personally in his career being dropped. And for those, those watchers or listeners and um, viewers are not aware, was Jim Layton was the goalkeeper at the time in the late 80s. Uh, he was Scotland number one. Ferguson brought him to Old Trafford not long after he arrived, after Ferguson arrived. And it was basically looked upon as, okay, that's the goalkeeping issue sorted for United for the next 10 years. He was regarded as one of the best keepers in Europe at the time. He was Scotland's number one. I mean, I didn't, I don't say Britain because Neville Southall probably just about had that tag at the time. But Jim Layton was a super, super goalkeeper, a very capable goalkeeper and was worthy of, of the tag of being United number one at the time. Unfortunately, it didn't work out for him, and almost certainly because of the psychological burden of being Manchester United goalkeeper, and the pressure was getting to him. And if you watch that 89-90 season, not so much the 5-1 defeat to Man City, but certainly the cup run, United got there in spite of, of Leighton's mistakes, okay? Um, it pains me to say that because I know it hurt Leighton. Um, no, I didn't get to know Jim Lane personally through writing the book, but I did get to know one or two people um, who did know him and were, were, you know, responsible for, like Archie Knox, for making the decision um, to not play him in the replay at, at Wembley. Because we get to Wembley, um, he makes a few mistakes en route, Newcastle away and, uh, and the semi-final against Oldham. But he, he starts the game. And the first goal we concede, not only is it, you know, late and largely culpable. He's not solely culpable, but he is largely culpable. I also noticed all 10 outfield players were in the area at the time of the set piece that, that contributes to the first goal scored by Gary Riley or Gary O'Reilly, the Crystal Palace centre-half. And that's nuts to have all 10 outfield players in your area. Now, as a goalkeeper, you need to be saying something. But even as players, psychologically, that says, why are they so deep here? You know, why are all, it's insane. I mean, you would have at least one or two players. Danny Wallace, the, the winger, for example, probably should be on the halfway line, you would think. And, and you know, Mark Hughes, I mean, is he needed there necessarily? So, yeah, anyway, um, he's also at fault for the third goal um, as well. So we lose, we draw the game three all thanks to a Mark Hughes equaliser. And Ferguson has a decision to make. Now, interestingly, the thing I learned was that Archie Knox, actually vouched for Leighton and Archie Knox wanted to play Leighton in the in the in the replay but equally Knox was also fine with he knew that his role was number two he was a sounding board Ferguson would ask him what he think he gave what he thought um but Knox told me himself he said you know he's not too proud he was fine with Ferguson's decision and Ferguson's decision was probably the right one at the end of the day they won the cup but secondly Leighton made two or three good saves and Leighton was probably technically not as good a goalkeeper as, as 
sorry, Seeley was not led. Les Seeley, I should say, came in and made some good saves. And and Les Seeley probably technically wasn't as good a goalkeeper as Leighton, but his strength of character, his personality, and his ability to cope with a big game. And maybe nowadays the FA Cup final is not such a big game, but back then it was probably the single biggest game in in English football per season, given that the you know the league would be decided over 38 games normally, and and Europe wasn't a thing because we were banned from it. It was the single biggest game in English football because of the league, you know. And Leighton had the personality to cope with it. Uh, sorry. Said it again. Seely had the cope, had the pressure to cope with it. Unlike me on this podcast, it would seem. <laughs> Seely had the. Um, You're going okay. Cope with that, with that pressure, um, and Leighton didn't. And um, yeah, so that's that's Archie Knox and, and and many other people helped me in in terms of the book and give me some insight into Ferguson. And Ferguson once famously said, he said, the ability to take a decision and follow it through is his single biggest piece of advice he would give to any upcoming coach or manager. Hi, this is Ken Doherty, and you're listening to Red Devil Talk, the podcast with Jimmy Williams. What was the process of dealing with defeat for Ferguson, according to Knox, according to Munstein, according to the people you spoke to within the club? The process of you saying, okay, we've lost, we need to learn from this, we need to move on. What was the process? Uh, Muhlenstein is probably the best person to, to um, cite with this one. I mean, certainly regarding the latter half of, of Ferguson's time at the club, when I think he could probably deal with defeat a little bit better. I, I think in the early years, as, as Knox highlighted, you know, it was devastating for him and, and he couldn't necessarily move on. And, um, and maybe that contributed, I guess, to play in 92 to the, to the eventual title loss and depression around the club. But the second half of his tenure uh, in particular, Ferguson could compartmentalise, well, he could compartmentalise the club as a whole. He had people doing stuff on the pitch, he had people in the you know, dressing room, he had sports scientists, and he, he moved on and learned from certain things, as I said. But he could even compartmentalise himself in, in, in how to deal with it. Now, there would be the immediate reaction, which would be, <laughs> sometimes he would be fierce, and this is the exact word that Moonstein used. Um, uh, he would be fierce, and we know about that. But other times he would surprise you and or the players and even some of his staff by, by not being necessarily angry. And sometimes the element of surprise, I think Leo Ferdinand also highlighted it, um, when that element of surprise kind of kept you on your toes, you just never knew. Ferdinand also said at halftime once, I think he said to one of the other players, it might have been Cristiano Ronaldo, said, come on, we need to get to the dressing room, we need to get there quick because they were losing at half-time. And, and so even defeats, um, you know, the 98-99 season is, if, if, if the theme of the book is pretty much about journeys from defeat to victory, there's even a part of that 98-99 season is where we're losing in a game, either at half-time or in the last five minutes. I mean, we know about that. But, you know, the, 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 the losing within a game moment of Ferguson, either using rage, either using motivational tactics, psychological ones with his players at half-time, we know about the touching of the trophy, you know, you have to walk past the European Cup and not be able to touch it at half-time. And even losing within a game and making a tactical decision, I mean, like I say, or or equalising against Bayern in that game and, and telling Steve McLaren to calm down because McLaren wanted to go back to 4-4-2 and, and Ferguson was like, hang on a second, let's just wait another minute or two here. And so, but but sorry, come back to Lunenstein and the whole process, if you like, that, that immediate 15-20 minutes afterwards would be dressing room and it could be 
reminding the players that they haven't lived up to his expectations. Uh, and he would often do so say, in a fierce manner, uh, according to Lulenstein. Um, then there would be the press conference. And Paul Hayward would talk about this, both the pre-match press conference, but also the post-match, where, where Ferguson would be ready for it and would often have a message. I mean, Clive Tilsley also talks about how when he came uh, to the press after that 2002 defeat I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast about Clive Tilsley said, I could have asked Ferguson the capital of Ecuador that day and Ferguson would have still complained about um, how he wanted to let the fans in to, to remind the players of their duties, if you like, and their responsibility to the club. Ferguson was very angry, I think, with Van Nistelrooy that day about how he changed shirts with a Man City player at the end of the game, for example, God, Gary Neville mentioned that. But, um, you know, sometimes Ferguson would have this message, but whatever, there would be the press conference and he would be ready for it. Whatever, he would have his message and he would get that across no matter what. Then there would be the third part, which would be the the drink with the opposing manager. And and Mullenstein again talks about how, <laughs> pun intended, but the, the, the mood would be washed away, if you like, uh, with the red wine that would, would soon flow. Um, so there would be sort of three phases. And, and um, you know, I don't want to tell you too much about what Mullenstein says in the book, because I'd like one or two people to buy it. But, but he certainly, you know, goes through those motions, Mullenstein, when he explains about those moments and those three phases, as, as, as Mullenstein talks about. Um, so, yeah, he, he could move on from a defeat, but he would also use it. I mean, Van, Van Persie as well talks about how, uh, and, and I mentioned in the book about how he would use defeat in training as well, and in methods and, and words, you know, and, and, and also how, you know, he would move on and move the club forward. And I think with the exception of, um, the last four years in Europe, probably, United were always going in one direction. In every sense, in every sense, United were going forward. Uh, we can't say the same about the last seven years, of course, but that's... Uh, Unfortunately not. That's a, there's another podcast or two in that alone. You mentioned the early setbacks, Anfield, 1992. You mentioned the 5-1 defeat to City. Yeah. As we know, Ferguson had many setbacks in those early years. We'll never know how close he was to the sack. We'll never know was he on the brink. We'll never truly know. What were the solutions Ferguson found to alleviate those early problems? Well, uh, two, just two things I will touch on in terms of how close he was to the sack. Um, Archie Knox told me that Martin Edwards told him and um, Ferguson as they were getting off the coach at Nottingham Forest in the third round, that famous game, Ashnox told me that Martin Edwards had assured them both that no matter what happened that day, they would still be in a job on London. Okay, and this was a Sunday afternoon, or Sunday lunchtime, I guess they arrived at the city ground. So that's the first thing. However, Martin Edwards' tone has been a bit more frank in recent years, and I have seen an interview where Martin Edwards admitted that it may have been tough. And I wonder, and this is just spe me speculating, I know less than most, despite speaking to one or two people. I wonder if we'd lost to Hereford in the fourth round, I think it was, where it was touch and go, nil-nil, with nine minutes to go and a few hairy moments. And, and I think Clayton Blackmore jokes about how he saved Ferguson's job rather than Mark Robbins, because everyone talks about Mark Robbins in the third round, but can you imagine losing to Hereford? I think Blackmore got the winner that game. I, I could be wrong, but he certainly played a key part. So losing to Hereford, and in fact, I think Edwards just does touch on this. Edwards just does say about how we lost to Hereford. 
that would have been the game that that would have probably I mean losing to Hillsborough who were in the bottom tier so the fourth tier as we would call it and I think they were right near the bottom they may even have been very close to the bottom losing to Forest may have been more palpable more swallowable sorry more you know more acceptable because Forest were high flying and were not far off winning the league themselves at the time and won the European Cup of, you know seven eight nine years before and were a good cup side and, and were good had good good players so anyway so that's that's that that's the first thing um that's how close he was to the to the fact but regarding the psychological element and and uh, what went on that 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 ability to for Ferguson to take a decision was was something Ferguson spoke about um, in his latter years at the club but actually it was evident in his early years because probably the biggest and most difficult decision on the outside to take would have been the sales of Whiteside, McGrath and Strachan, although there are slightly different strands to the reasoning behind the sales of Strachan for the other two. Strachan, um, so, but the reason that they were toughest, super tough, and, and arguably the toughest Ferguson really had to make, because really when he made other big decisions, especially in the second half of his tenure, the fans were pretty much on his side. Um, you know, there's that famous poll that the Manchester Evening News had um, where there's some, everyone wanted, more than half the pollsters or, or people polled, sorry, wanted Ferguson out after he sold in Conchelka St. Hughes. We don't know how much City fans sabotaged that poll. Because mm-hmm. largely, whatever Ferguson decided in the second half of his tenure, no matter how controversial it may have seemed, like the sale of Van Nistelrooy to some extent, or the sale of Stab, which, by the way, was probably a mistake even in Ferguson's eye. But whatever decision he took, we trusted him implicitly. I never went into a, I never looked at the team sheet personally and thought, no, why has he not chosen him today? Or, well, I might have thought that, but I thought he's taken this decision because he's seen something on the training pitch or there's something else going on. You know, any decision that he made, no matter how controversial or strange, you know, dropping Rooney against Madrid, for example, in his last season, we just didn't question it. Wasn't the case in the first four years. Um, when, like I say, Strachan, Whiteside and McGrath were viewed on the outside as fans. These were the three players at the club who we thought were good enough to be a part of a title-winning team. They had the talent and Strachan went on to prove it. He was a fundamental part of the 92-93 winning team at Leeds. McGrath largely went on to prove it as well, although he never won a title. His first season after he left the club was at Villa, 89-90. He was a fundamental part of a team that pushed Liverpool, as it turned out, for the title. Villa finished second that season, and we were a long way off. We were 11, 12, 13th, and could only dream of challenging for the title in 89-90. So, and we had Pallister and Bruce, and Pallister in particular looked like a mistake, an expensive mistake of 2.3 million at the time. So these decisions, and Whiteside, is probably, as far as Ferguson's concerned, maybe the most difficult one of the three to, to jettison, if you like, or to sell. Because Ferguson said that he was the most talented player he'd managed, at least until that time. By 1990, Ferguson managed a lot of talented players, especially at Aberdeen. So that was a huge decision. And the barrage of abuse, which back in the day would have been, was done by letter, that would have been on social media, of course, like, We'll never know, even the, the invention of social media. How would have things panned out with a club that is so obsessed with social media today, as we unfortunately know, um, and, and clicks and interests? Um, but anyway, um, that's a, a different topic. But, but 
how would have things been for Ferguson if social media would have been invented? Well, we'll never know. But um, yeah, that ability to take a decision is the thing that shines through. Something that he also does mention, which we heard a lot in the second half of his time at the club, or certainly from 99 onwards. And that's interesting as well. 99 is pretty much the midway point of his tenure, as it turned out. Um, but in the, in the second half, and from 99 onwards, we'd often hear about the club reflecting its manager, and Ferguson would say that often, and we heard it, and we saw it in the... In, but he mentions it as well a lot in his book, uh, his first autobiography, and how he looked around the dressing room in, in the summer of 89, and he said he didn't think the club or the team represented him whatsoever, not even close. And that was clearly a reason behind selling uh, Whiteside and McGrath because of their off-the-pitch antiques in terms of drinking, and also Strachan on the pitch, especially because of his perceived lack of courage, I think, was what Ferguson basically thought. He thought, you know, that, that either he just didn't seem always interested or his heart wasn't in it. That may be unfair in Strachan's eyes, but, um, you know, whatever, that's Ferguson's view. I think Ferguson said he played once like a trialist. Now, what Ferguson meant exactly by that performance, I, I, I don't know. I can only speculate and think that Basically, just either wasn't professional enough or just wasn't good enough on the day. But um, yeah, um, this this necessity for Ferguson for the team to reflect him and and uh, and the drinking culture, the same with those two other players. Now, interestingly, Brian Robson was a party to the drinking culture at Old Trafford at the time. But Brian Robson would perform week in week out on the pitch, whereas McGrath and probably even more uh, Whiteside wasn't the case. I suppose the key team throughout the book, as you've alluded to, is that Ferguson's greatest strength is to use setbacks to mm-hmm. fuel success. I think in that respect, the book is unique because you know Ferguson is often lauded as the greatest manager of all time, and rightly yeah. so. When we consider his successes, and indeed the success of any top player, athlete, manager, we consider the trophies, we consider the wins. Often we don't remember the setbacks that have gone before that to reach that point. So do you think that, do you think the people who can learn from their setbacks, like Alex Ferguson, who can take the setbacks and use it as a motivational tool are ultimately the ones who are the most successful? Yeah, I do. And, and Ferguson thinks that as well. Um, ironically, he gave an interview to, I say ironically because he's a Liverpool fan, but he gave an interview to DJ Foodie on uh, Five Live. Um, in one way, one of the more unusual uh, interviews that Ferguson would have given. Um, but Spoonie went to his house, and it was a fairly relaxed affair. It was about February, March 2012, and maybe it was a relaxed affair because we probably were holding a five- or eight-point lead at the top of the league at the time. Uh, of course, things didn't work out that way coming into the season, but we all know. But Ferguson said to Spoonie in the interview, said he said exactly that, that, that his... Um, wherewithal or his ability to move on or learn from, from losses and setbacks. Uh, I use the word setbacks in his title because you say it wasn't just individual defeats, there were moments. And pull through and come out the other side and emerge stronger was fundamental um, for him. Um, I mean, moving with the times, by the way, is, is another <laughs> strength of his that you would probably put alongside um, that. But I think they're kind of, in, they are interlinked in a way. Um, as, as Clive Tilsley mentioned when I, when I spoke to him. So I do think this was fundamental. Um, and um, yeah, I think regarding setbacks, and now I'm going to 
kind of bring it into a generic point. I think some of the most successful people in life, in business, in sport, are the ones that can deal with the setbacks and can deal with the failures because bad things happen. They're going to happen, okay? You're going to get in your car and go to the airport and sometime, or the train station, or whatever. You're going to walk. You need to be prepared for there being traffic on the way, okay? You need to be prepared for the fact that your plane may be delayed if you get to the airport on time and then it's delayed. Now, you need to deal with it. And you need to be prepared for that and think, okay, what is going to happen if my plane is delayed or if my train is late? I might need to get the earlier train. I mean, I know some of these are basic things or or even then it could get cancelled or I may need to make sure I've got the phone number of the person I'm going to be meeting or and so on. We're going to have, what happened to me, I was drunk at a train station in Madrid, fell asleep, woke up, suitcase gone. Okay, so, <laughs> and inside was a brand new laptop. Yeah my mistake okay but what you've got to deal with it you know you've got to deal with these bad things and i know i'm trivializing it in a way to the small things in life but then we talk about very successful people very successful business people like uh, steve jobs i mean we've all or many of us maybe have seen the famous speech he gives at harvard about dropping out of school and you know being fired from apple at, at one point and you, these people the successful people do remember the setbacks as much and they burn as brightly, maybe even more so. Roy Keane, you know, Roy Keane gave an article on the, on the day, wrote an article, I think for uh, one of the tabloids on the, the final day of the season, 2011-12, saying he remembers Blackburn 95 more than anything, you know. Um, for him in particular, that was that was a you know fear of failure is something that um, that Keane would talk about as a motivation psychologically. I'm sure Ferguson had an element of that. There was a, him and Keane a lot in, in common, but but in a way, this is the defeat, the failure, leading to the success. And without the failure, you, you know, if you win every time, you know, it probably gets pretty boring. I'm, I, I'm not I'm not saying that they can't deal with winning too, but but certainly. Um, that has an effect. And I'll, I'm going to disagree slightly with, with my perspective as a fan, uh, with, with this view of, of we remembering the victories more than the defeats. And, and maybe it's subjective, and, but it probably is. But I can tell you this as a fan, I still want one more Champions League or one more title. I would love 95, for example, funny enough, more than 92. 92 is horrible and was the worst thing, but in a way I wouldn't change it. 95 would be great, because then we would have a nice sequence of five titles in a row, which would be unprecedented, you know? Three was is something that many managers and clubs have achieved, but five in a row is something no English club has achieved. I would love to uh, change that 2009 Champions League final. That's the one, maybe the one, is my personal view, um, the one defeat that I would change if I possibly could and just win back-to-back -back Champions League and be the first to do it and, and establish what, what I think Ferguson yearned for more than anything else, which was a, a, a European legacy, a European era. Because in the 70s and 80s and, and 60s and 50s, of course, I'm going about it in a funny way, there, but um, we talk about European eras of being three in a row. By the 2000s and the way the Champions League format was going, it was like, no one can even do two in a row. I mean, we've now had Madrid winning three in a row in the last few years, but by 2009, no one had ever won two in a row. Come close, a few teams. 
Ajax had come close, Juventus had come close, but no one had won back to back. And so if we'd won it in 09, Ferguson could retire and say that was, and, and fans could say that was the Man United era because we got to the 07 semi final. We won it in 08, beating Barcelona on the way, crucial. We would then have that 09 one I talk about, 2010 quarterfinals, 2011 final. And you've got a huge body of work there where we have more titles, more, you know, if you want to call them ranking points, whatever. We would have a body of work that said that was the Man United era. Three finals in, in out of four, two of which you win, and you're beating Barcelona twice and you're, you know, on the way. So any notion of it being the Barcelona era, which is now what we view it, because Barcelona won it in 06. Barcelona were in the semi-finals in 08, and they won it in, in 09, and then also in 11. We now look at that, especially that latter part of being the Barcelona, who has just changed that one result, and suddenly it's the main idea, unquestionably. Just developing your last point there. Yep. The ones that get away, I think, is a good way to put it. We, okay, could, yeah. sit here, we could sit here and chat about the 94 double winning team, we could sit here yeah. and chat about the treble winning team, the 2008 yeah. double winning team, which for me is up there with the great United teams. However, something that stays with me is losing the league to City on the final day in 2012. That one, mm-hmm. it never leaves me. I still think of that. We should have won the league that year. Yeah. The Aguero moment, being mocked by the Sunderland fans. I won't forget that one. Tell us how you address this in the book. Did you speak to any of the club staff? Did they tell you anything about how much this hurt Ferguson? Yes, definitely. I mean, probably the key to this, because listen, uh, I mean, as you can probably tell already, but I didn't get to speak to the great man himself. I mean, he's obviously, you know, uh, he's been retired now seven years and the coronavirus time as well. I, I did speak to someone close, or to many people close to him, but um, unfortunately didn't get to speak to him himself. And that's, that's fine. I had plenty of other people who gave me some good stuff. And regarding this, point. The person who probably brought me closest, along with Mullenstein, the person who brought me closest to the action, if you like, and how Ferguson was feeling at the time was Paul Hayward, uh, Ferguson's biographer, the, the second autobiography. And Paul told me that, I mean, we, we know some of the things. We've seen and read them in Ferguson's book, and we, we know about um, how that hurt him and how his wife at the time didn't want to leave the house. We know some of those things, but what also helped the book and help the narrative of the book was that Paul told me that Ferguson's resolve after that title defeat on the, in the last minute um, was in strengthened, you know, Ferguson's resolve was strong anyway, but it was strengthened, it was doubled, it was trebled, whatever the, the word is, by the nature of the defeat. Ferguson spent more time, analyzing, this is what Hayward told me, spent more time analysing opponents for the beginning of the following season in particular than ever before. We know that Van Persie was bought on the back of it too. Uh, and, and that's fundamental. Losing the lead on goal difference is something that Ferguson didn't want to happen again. And he saw Van Persie was helping make sure that wouldn't happen again. But what Hayward also told me was about the resolve and the fact that Ferguson spent more time analysing his post. He spent more time, you know, watching TV and, 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 and video analysis. And, uh, you know, this was just, just as I say, was such a huge element behind Certainly the flying start we got to the following season. I know we lost on the opening day to Everton, but by Christmas the following season, the league was done, really. At least in, in hindsight it was. I mean, by the time we beat Man City at the beginning of December with that um, 
fantastic deflected free kick from Van Persie, <laughs> which we celebrated as though it was the best goal of all time. Uh, but unfortunately, it took a deflection, but you know, we don't care. They are killed. Um, actually, that game was actually drifting away from PSG. It was 2 0 at half time, I think, yeah. also into the lead. And uh, Man City got it back to 2 2. And anyone who's a fan of other sports, such as tennis, you know, psychologically, that momentum of you know, winning the first two sets, but then you lose the next two, you're in big trouble. It's almost like Absolutely. you're two sets up down. I mean, it's very difficult to, to change. And we talk about momentum psychologically with, with Premier League chases and, and, uh, and title chases. And, you know, momentum is, is huge. And momentum is huge within a game. And, and really, that game looked like, you know, we were hanging on for 2 2 at the end. but so to win that three two was huge. Um, so yeah, the the this is what you know. Just when I had the idea for the book, either subconsciously or consciously, in the last couple of years, you know, the title that that 2012 2013 thing. I, I was probably thinking of no, I wasn't really thinking about the book in hard terms by then. But you know, by the time I was thinking about the book in hard terms, if you like, in serious terms, about two years ago. By then, it was like you know. It, like I had this idea and every time I researched it I'd find more evidence now football is not super scientific and there are narratives and there's emotion and there's heart and there's ideas but I like to think that the book you know at least where the nine journeys that are documented in the book from defeat to victory if you like or setback to, to victory or, or triumph everyone is backed up by some evidence by some words by some example uh, and, and, and that journey from, from losing the league in, in 2012 to winning in 2013 is arguably the strongest and, and clearest example of, of turning a, a, you know, a setback around uh, into, into a triumph. I want to conclude the podcast by saying congratulations on the book. All the best Thank with you. it. I really enjoyed listening to you for the last hour or so. I think an appropriate, an appropriate way to conclude is by reading Renee Mullenstein's quote in the foreword, he mentions Ferguson's quote in the retirement speech. Even yeah. the defeats are all part of this great football club of ours, which I think is the take-home message for your book. Yeah. Um, uh, excuse me for taking Renee's glory away, um, because uh, as, as he mentioned, that title for the book was kind of a bit lucky as well for me. So, I mean, he mentions it in the in the forward, but by then the the title of the book had already been decided. But I, I when I pitched it a year ago to um, to Pitch Publishing, and the book is available on their website as it is on Matt Amazon and and uh, Waterstones, and uh, can be bought in Waterstones as well. Certainly on Dean's Gate, I, I've seen it. Um, plug, um, please. So, um, but seriously, yeah. So even the defeats, the title of the book, kind of what happened about a year ago, I. I was when I pitched it. Um, I'm not sure if I even had the title at the time, but a bit less than a year ago. And then this sort of fell into my lap. I mean, I knew that that speech. Again, we all know we know some of the lines from it. But that that emphasis that Ferguson used on that those three words was like, okay, that's kind of interesting and whatever. I never thought when he said it at the time that um, they would, you know, come in handy for the name of the book. But then when when I was thinking about the book and thinking about the speech and I was like, you know, it's just like, oh my God, I've just like struck gold really because, because it's just such an ideal, you know, title for the book because it's all about, you know, setbacks or losses or defeats. And then it's like, yeah, even the defeats. And then, and I can't profess to saying this was a thought through process. It just sort of struck me, sort of maybe towards the end of writing it or halfway through writing it. 
Um, so just a few months ago, I was like, oh, hang on a second. To get even is like, you know, to get revenge, although it's also a bit like making it equal, making it good again. You know, even Steven, something's bad happened and then something good happens. And so I thought, okay, yeah, it's like to like the defeat happens and then you even it out with a victory, you know? So even that was just a bit lucky. But um, having had this title um, in mind, having had that memorable speech, uh, you know, and then I, of course I mentioned it to Rene during the during our interview, and then he then used it again, if you like, in in the four that he wrote, which was just great. Um, when he, I mean, he, the interview with the contact I had with him and the time we spent together, albeit on Zoom, was amazing. And so when I asked him if he was interested in writing the forward as well, and he agreed, it was just like, wow, it's just it's perfect. So yeah, but um, yeah, that's that's how the title came about, and. I was really pleased that, that Rene really, you know, was 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 great with his forward and and great with some of the other nuggets of information he gave me about how Ferguson was and how he dealt with defeat and, and setbacks. Fantastic. Great stuff. Thanks very much. This is Red Devil Talk. John Silk's new book, Even the Defeats, is available now on Amazon, Waterstone, Pitch Publishing, and I will include all the links. Thank you. Pleasure. Calling for it. James can only fist it. It comes for Cantona! I don't believe it! Well left by York, fit by Cole. Back to Annie Cole for Dwight York.